This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, would you turn in them to 1 Corinthians 13, please? 1 Corinthians 13. You know, this passage is one of the most, if not the most, read passages of Scripture at weddings. Uh, and understandably so. I mean, it's, it's poetic, it's vivid, it, it paints a, an idyllic picture. Uh, but the striking thing to notice about it, it, it's not describing marital love. That's not Paul's primary intent in penning these words. It's describing Christian love. Love demonstrated within the church among Christians. So these words are written to us. This is the kind of love we are to demonstrate for each other. So let me read it and then we're gonna dive into it. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. Does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. Does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts always hopes, always perseveres. The Apostle Paul penned these words and he was writing to a very young church. It was a brilliant church, in fact. It was a growing church. It was a church filled with talented and gifted people. Uh, They were visionary. They were ready to move mountains. They were people who were willing to give away everything. They were, were incredibly philanthropic. They were willing to die for the movement. Um, They were so gifted that they had great gifts of insight and knowledge and speaking. They got revelations from God. They did miracles. They could heal. Verses one to three describes everything they are. And you get done with that and you think, wow, that's an impressive church. Surely this is evidence that God's hand is on them. But verses four to seven is a catalog of everything they're not. Verses one to three is everything they are. Verses four to seven is everything they're not. So Paul is saying that in in spite of all these incredible gifts and this brilliance, they're characterized in their life together by disputes, by fighting, by pride and coldness, rudeness, self-exaltation, impatience with each other, backbiting. It's a bombshell, really, because Paul is saying, in the context of the argument, Paul is saying that the evidence of the Spirit's work among the church is not primarily spiritual gifts. It's love. It's not in the talent or the gifting or the philanthropic endeavors or even their willingness to die for the movement. The evidence of the Spirit's work among the church is Christian love. Now, one of our values here is gospel community. That is, the church is a taste of heaven. It's a value here. The church is a taste of heaven. Why? Because the church is the new Eden. Why? Because it's a harbinger of the new heavens and the new earth. Why? 
Because it's the dwelling place of God. What makes the church the dwelling place of God, what makes the church the dwelling place of God is the, is the, the presence of God's spirit among the people. And Paul is saying that the primary virtue of the dwelling place of God is love. It's the primary virtue of the dwelling place of God. It's Christian love. So uh, we're gonna spend three Sundays looking at 1 Corinthians 13 and hopefully it'll be helpful to us as we seek to embody this value. The church is a taste of heaven. Today we're gonna ponder just the first sentence of verse four, three words. Love is patient. That's all we're gonna do. Here's what we're gonna look at. What patience is, the evidence for it, and how it thrives. What patience is, the evidence for it, and how it thrives. First, what patience is. Now, what, is, what does Paul mean exactly when he says love is patient? You know, some of us are really patient when, with circumstances. When they go awry, you know, when things don't go the way you expected them to, you respond with calmness and poise. Situations don't tend to ruffle your feathers very easily. Some of you are like that. But the patience that Paul is referring to here is not primarily patience with circumstances. It's patience with people. Game changer, right? (laughs) Patience with people. Love, Christian love, is patient with people. But it's not just patient with people. It gets better than that. The word that Paul uses for patience here means enduring injuries without retaliating. The King James Version actually does a very nice job translating this by using the word long-suffering. So the the word for patient that Paul uses here is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Sometimes you'll be reading through your Bible, you'll see the abbreviation LXX. That is the abbreviation for the Septuagint or the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, this word for patience is found in Proverbs 19, verse 11. A person's patience yields Wisdom, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. In Hebrew poetry, lines are complementary. One line unpacks, fleshes out another. So the writer is saying, it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. That explains a person's patience. So patience is the idea of long-suffering. Love is long-suffering. A loving person is a long-suffering person. So whether someone in the church has defrauded you or taken advantage of you or simply been unfair to you, the mark of the Spirit, the mark of Christian love, endures these types of injuries without retaliating. In other words, Christian love has a long fuse. (laughs) It's got a long fuse. Love takes time before fuming and bursting into flames. A little later, Paul says, love is not easily angered. It's a sibling term to this one. It's not easily angered. So Christian love isn't touchy. An easily irritated person is is someone who's not walking in the most excellent way. This is what Paul means when he says, love is patient. Now, (laughs) this would not have been a popular sentiment in the first century. It would not have been a popular thing for Paul to say this to the church in Corinth. Because the heroes of the day were the Avengers. And when I say Avengers, don't think of the movies. Um, The heroes of the day were the Avengers. Aristotle taught that the great Greek virtue was the refusal to tolerate insult or injury, but to strike back in retaliation at the slightest offense. Little has changed, wouldn't you say? Little has changed. The great virtue is now strike back at the slightest offense. 
But that's not what we see embodied in Jesus, the ultimately patient person. First Peter chapter two, verse 23, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Abraham Lincoln is embraced as a great American hero of, of uh, American politics for many people. Um, he, there was a man who did not appreciate him during the early days. The man's name was Stanton. Uh, Stanton is recorded as calling Lincoln a, quote, low cunning clown, end quote. In fact, he nicknamed, Stanton nicknamed Lincoln the original gorilla. So a gentleman at that time, a gentleman of uh, of prominence was going to Africa to attempt to capture a gorilla. Stanton caught wind of that, made contact with him and told him, there's no need for you to go to Africa. You can find one in Springfield, Illinois. When Lincoln appointed his cabinet, he appointed Stanton as his war minister. Now someone by Lincoln's side asked him at that point, he said, how could you possibly do this? How could you possibly appoint this man as part of your cabinet after all the things that he has said about you? Lincoln replied, he said, he's the best man for the job and I will treat him with every courtesy. When the bullet took Lincoln's life and his body was taken into the stateroom, history records that Stanton was found looking down at Lincoln's silent face and said through his tears, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. The patience of Lincoln's love conquered the hardness of Stanton's heart. Love is patient. It's long-suffering. This is what it is. Second, evidence for it. Let me mention two. First is freedom from resentment. First sign of patience is freedom from resentment. If you're plotting revenge, you're no longer bearing the injury. You're no longer suffering long. If you're venting rage or bitterness of spirit against another, you're no longer enduring the injury. If you, if you speak reproachfully or derisively of your brother or sister in Christ so that others will think less of them, you're no longer enduring the injury. You're exacting revenge. One of the signs that you're a patient person is that you have a freedom from resentment. Moby Dick is the best story that captures this. It's a story of revenge and obsession. You know how the story goes probably. Captain Ahab, he's the whaler. He loses a leg to a whale. And at that point in time, this smoldering anger begins to grow in the one-legged captain. His anger grows so much that it becomes his fixation. And, And his only goal is revenge against the sea monster. And as his lust and his hatred grow, so does his lack of wisdom. Proverbs 19.11 On his very next whale hunting trip, the driving force in his soul begins to override his good judgment and he starts putting himself, his crew, his ship into insanely hazardous situations. Common sense at this point is overruled by his wild passion for killing this whale. Everything else is secondary. 
So as he, as he hurls his, his efforts and his crew and his ship into this perilous sea of hate, the opportunity presents itself for him to take vengeance on, on this whale. And so a chase ensues, three days. And crew members at this point realize Ahab's folly is going to mean their doom. Not for the whale, but for them. They're doomed. A man by the name of Starbuck who was Ahab's first mate, is the only one who's, who's got the courage to say anything to the captain. And he came up to him and he cried out to him. He said, oh, Ahab, not too late is it, even now, the third day, to desist. See, Moby Dick seeks you not. It is you, you that madly seek him. But it's too late. Ahab's desire for revenge has gotten too deep into his heart and he ignores every danger. And in the end, the ship is lost. The crew except for one is lost. And Ahab loses both his quest and his life. The whale, representing the great unknowable, has won. It's a wonderfully entertaining story with a powerful lesson. Resentment is personally destructive and is its nature to inflict collateral damage. Personal resentment never stays personal. It never stays personal. It inflicts collateral damage. Christian love endures the injury without setting sail to exact revenge. Christian love endures the injury without doing anything to gratify a bitter resentment. So the first sign of patience is freedom from resentment. Now, let me, let me pause here for a minute because at this point I can imagine someone protesting and saying, am I supposed to feel absolutely nothing towards being wronged by my brother or sister in Christ? Am I some robot who mechanically moves past the injury? No. The best bit of counsel I can offer you because it was the best bit of counsel ever offered me is this. It is important to recognize sin as primarily against God. Whatever was done to you is sin primarily against God. We can make a convincing argument that in every sin, God is the most offended party. So when we see sin as primarily against God, here's what happens. It frees us from resentment and it frees us for lament. If we see sin primarily as against God, it will protect us from seeking restitution and it will allow us to mount up to God in lament. The problem is, if you see the injury done to you as sin primarily against you and not God, you will not be able to help but slip into bitterness and resentment. If what was done to you is sin primarily against you, not against God, you will not be able to help but slip into resentment. But if you see sin that was committed against you as sin primarily against God, you will learn to inoculate yourself from resentment and position yourself to take your pain and your wounds to God and lament. So one sign you possess patience, let me give it to you, one sign you possess patience. You spend more time lamenting to God injuries you've suffered than plotting revenge or speaking ill of those who've wounded you. One sign you possess patience, you spend more time lamenting to God injuries you've suffered than plotting revenge or speaking ill of those who've wounded you. 
Second bit of evidence that you're a patient person is quietness of soul. <laughs> uh, you know, some, some people are able to endure injuries with kind of this pristine external behavior. We would label it as inauthentic. The outward appearance looks great. I mean, they don't speak maliciously about people. They're not backbiting. They're not participating in gossip. The external behavior looks good, but, but <laughs> internally they're a mess. They outside they appear long-suffering, but their souls are in a state of tumult. You know you have inward rest. You know you have quietness of soul when you're able to meditate on scripture for sustained periods of time without your thoughts wandering to your injury or who it was who inflicted it on you. It's one sign of quietness of soul, internal rest. You're able to stay engaged with God in his word without being frequently diverted to your hurt or the person who's done that to you. You know you have inward rest. You've got quietness of soul when you're able to compose your mind to pray. You're able to compose your mind to pray without having your mind diverted by the wrong you received. Patient people are able to maintain an inner serenity. They're able to maintain an inner serenity. So love is patient. The evidence of it, freedom from resentment, quietness of soul. Third, how it thrives. How it thrives. First, meditate on our long-suffering God. Meditate on our long-suffering God. God is the ultimate long-sufferer. He's the ultimate long-sufferer. There are numerous places we could turn to, to to discover this. Let me read two. Exodus 34, verse six. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There are passages like this all throughout the scriptures. He's merciful, he's gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Or Romans 2, 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God is patient. He's long-suffering. Think for a minute about how he bears innumerable injuries from the human race. There's an entire book of the Bible that's devoted to trying to get us to see what God feels when humanity sins against him. It's the book of Hosea. It's the feeling you'd have if you found out your spouse had an affair. God suffers through innumerable injuries committed by the human race. So you get to that point, you just say, why doesn't he just wipe us out? He was perfectly fine before us. He would be perfectly fine after us. Why doesn't he wipe us out? He allows the earth to keep spinning. He gives you the breath you just breathed. And it gets better than that. Matthew 6, Jesus talks about God's, the enormity of his grace when he says, it is God who causes the sun 
to rise and shine its life-giving beams on the evil and the good. It is God who causes the clouds to send bounty-producing rain on the just and the unjust. So think for a minute about the prosperity enjoyed by millions of people around the world. Think about the prosperity that's enjoyed by millions of people around the world. Now think about the wickedness contained within those same millions. And the sun keeps rising and the rain keeps falling on the evil and the good, on the just and the unjust. How great is God's long-suffering? History records that one of the greatest, one of the great atheists of the 19th century was Robert Ingersoll, Bob Ingersoll. Uh, he was very popular on the speaking circuit and he had this amazing speech that he would churn out whenever he toured uh, where he would uh, dispute and deny the existence of God. And one of his favorite parts in the speech uh, was to say to the crowd defiantly, I'll give God five minutes to strike me dead for the things I've said. And then he would set his watch, set aside, and he'd keep talking. And when the five minutes had elapsed, he would use the fact that he had not been struck dead as proof God does not exist. One perceptive individual asked, did Mr. Ingersoll think that he could exhaust the patience of the eternal God in five minutes? (laughs) Why would we meditate on this patience? Why would we meditate on the patience of God? You know, researchers have uh, said that thespians, actors, show different patterns of brain activity depending on whether or not they're in character. Uh, Dr. Stephen Brown at McMaster in Canada did the research on this, and he said, it looks like when you're acting, you're actually suppressing yourself, almost like the character you're acting out is possessing you. So when actors act, they suppress them, and the character possesses them. But that doesn't come easily. That does not come easily. Uh, Many of us don't realize the lengths that these actors will go to to become possessed by the character they're playing. They go to extreme lengths of preparation. For example, to better imitate Ray Charles, Jamie Foxx wore prosthetic eyelids to prepare him for it. He wore prosthetic eyelids, leaving him blind for most of the day. In fact, occasionally he was inadvertently left on the set because the crew forgot he was blind. In, uh, in his role for the pianist, Adrian Brody familiarized himself with despair and hunger. He, he moved to Europe, brought just two suitcases with him, lived a meager lifestyle. He lost 30 pounds, took piano lessons and dialect lessons all in preparation for the role that he would play. For her role in Black Swan, Natalie Portman trained with New York City ballet dancer Mary Helen Bowers, check this out, eight hours a day, six days a week for the 12 months before the film started shooting. For his role in My Left Foot, Daniel Day-Lewis interacted with disabled patients at the Sandy Mountain School Clinic in Dublin, Ireland, and between takes during filming, he remained in his wheelchair, was spoon-fed, and he was carried around by the crew. Now, what are they all doing? What are all these actors doing? They're meditating. They're meditating. They're meditating on the characters they're about to represent meditation tends toward 
imitation. Meditation tends toward imitation. We need to drench ourselves in God's loving patience. Drench ourselves, not sprinkle, drench ourselves in God's loving patience. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's rich in forbearance. Drench yourself in our long-suffering God and watch how you become possessed by him. Second, we want to see this thrive in our lives. We need to nurture loving relationships with other believers. Uh, Very quickly, you've probably noticed something about human relationships. Think about this with me for a minute. You, You will likely, I hope this is true of you, you will bear much more from those for whom you have a strong affection than those you do not. Yes? Yes? Think about the person in this world whom you love the most. Who is that person? Think about who it is that you you love the most. Question, how much injury can you endure from that person before you would ever sit down to plot revenge? Quite a bit, quite a bit. How much injury can you endure from that person before you would ever work the lobby speaking badly about them behind their backs? How much injury can you endure from that person? The person for whom you have the strongest affection. How much injury can you endure from that person before you'd ever harbor resentment towards them? I think we're able to bear many things from our spouse and our children. We're able to bear many things from our spouse and our children without retaliating. Why? Because of the depth of the relationship you have with them. Because of the depth of the relationship you have with them. Love is of a nature that is antithetical to resentment and revenge. Love keeps out its contrary. You want a picture for this. We're in the middle of summer and some of you go over the top with your lawns. Okay? You're the ones who are making me look bad. Okay? <laughs> I've got a neighbor, two neighbors, five neighbors. <laughs> Every one of their lawns looks impeccable. And one of the things that I ask, what do you do? There's not a weed in it. And I never see them out there on their hands and knees pulling them out like I am. What are they doing? They feed the grass. They feed the grass. They feed the grass. They feed the grass. And it has a way of keeping out the weeds. (laughs) Nurturing loving relationships with other believers has a way of keeping out the weeds. The weeds of revenge, resentment, Bitterness. You want to see patience thrive in your life. Nurture loving relationships with other Christians. It keeps out its contrary. Patience thrives when loving relationship is nurtured. I'll close with this. Um, R.O. Bleckman is a very famous illustrator. uh, Maybe one of the most famous illustrators in the world. He wrote a book in which he shares a series of letters that he wrote to a younger fellow illustrator. And in one of the most poignant letters, Blackman addresses the reality of failure in illustrating. He writes this, preliminary drawings and sketches often are discouraging things, 
pale shadows of one's bold intentions. Seemingly nonsense, they're especially dispiriting for beginners. Is that what I did? The novice might ask. And I consider myself an artist? Speaking for myself, my trash basket is full of false starts and failed drawings. There should be a museum of failed art. It would exhibit all the terrible art that would have ended up in trash bins and garbage cans, lost and unknown to the public life. As I came across that, I thought, I thought to myself, you know, <laughs> each successive moment we live, we are making drawings and sketches. Every successive moment we live in, we're making drawings and sketches. You made a sketch this morning as you got ready for church and headed out the door. You made a sketch this morning as you tried to get your kids ready for church and get out the door. You, you composed a drawing this past week as you interacted with a coworker or a client. You also drew a picture as the thoughts toward that discourteous driver came flooding through your mind. Each successive moment we live in, we are making drawings and sketches. And at the end of it all, our lives will be filled with volumes of sketches and drawings that we have composed throughout our life here on earth. And if we're being honest, most of those belong in a museum of failed art. God knows that too. God knows that too. But here's the big difference. And the gospel makes this difference. We are not artists making sketches for clients. We are not artists making sketches for clients. Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection changes everything. Rather than seeing them as failed drawings, God sees them as valiant attempts made not by an aspiring artist, but by one of his children. What do you do with your kids' art? It doesn't land in a museum of failed art. It goes in his refrigerator. God's patience, his love, allows our imperfect, flawed art to hang on his refrigerator. Can we worship him for that? Let's respond to his long-suffering, patient, loving nature by becoming long-suffering, patient, loving people. Let's pray. Patient God, we can't begin to imagine what it's like for you to endure the injuries that this world inflicts upon you. And we are part of that. Our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts are sick. And yet, your patience seems limitless. You are slow to anger, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. So God, as we learn to drench ourselves in what you're like, I pray we would become possessed by you. In our life together as as the church, may we learn what it means to bear with one another in love.
And God, I want to pray that, not just for Alliance Bible Church, but for the American church. Christians all over this country, we live in a world that is quick to respond with hatred and vitriol and vengeance and and plotting the next move. I pray, God, that the church would be countercultural. May we be light. May we be salt. May we be just vastly different. For your glory and fame, we ask these things. Amen.